This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I have no doubt that you have been hearing tons in recent days, recent weeks, about the Kinder Morgan Pipeline, the Trans Mountain Pipeline project that is going on, the controversy surrounding this. Now, for those who don't know exactly what this is all about, and you know, sometimes you hear these things and you don't really know what this means. Many of you, of course, do. But for those who don't, in the simplest terms possible, and probably too simple, but just to keep it easy. This is a plan to expand the pipeline that is running from Alberta to the Pacific coast of British Columbia so it can roughly double the amount of oil and other uh, crude oil and natural gas that can be pumped from Alberta, from the sands, to the ships on the coast of BC in the Pacific and then transported around to wherever else in the world. So it would double the amount that Alberta is able to produce and thereby seemingly vastly increase the amount of money coming into the province, into the country. Now, Alberta wants this for obvious reasons. The Canadian government says it wants it, although there's some question about how much it really wants it. The BC government doesn't want it. So we end up in a standoff. This is where we get into our problem because right now, well, not just right now, ever, you cannot get from Alberta to the Pacific without going across British Columbia and British Columbia has put up a big barrier there saying, no, you're not coming across our land. It is a political problem. It's an economic problem. It's a lot of problems. Brian Lee Crowley is the managing director of the McDonald Laurier Institute. It's a nonpartisan political think tank in Ottawa. He joins me now. Mr. Crowley, thanks for doing this today. Oh, it's great to be here. Uh, just for a little bit of background before we dive into the political problems of this, um, from your perspective, how big a financial impact could this potentially have? Because we know Alberta has been hurting. We know their economy has been struggling. How big an impact would this actually have on that province? Well, uh, it would have a huge impact, not just on, on Alberta, but on the country as a whole. You know, uh, oil is our single most valuable export. And that continues to be the case even after uh, the price of oil, as you may recall, fell very significantly a couple of years ago. Uh, we, uh, for reasons that we can get into if you like, um, uh, we only have built infrastructure over the years that allows us to send oil to the United States. We don't have the possibility of sending oil to other markets. And the problem with the fact that we're sending it to the United States is that uh, in the U.S. we have to sell our oil at a discount because the U.S. is awash in oil. They've got more than they need, so we have to sell it to them at a discount. If we could get that oil to Tidewater so that we can put it on ships, as you said, if we could send it to Japan, if we could send it to China, if we could send it to Malaysia, if we could send it places like that, we would increase the price of every barrel of oil we put on that ship by somewhere between 5 and $10. That's for a single barrel of oil. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of barrels of oil a day. So the economic significance of this is very great. And beyond even that, and I don't want to get really into this, although it certainly is part of the story, there have been people who have suggested, look, if you can actually do this, not only do you increase the value for Canadians, the economic benefit, you actually undercut some of the other places in the world that maybe have folks who are benefiting from oil that we're not really fond of what they do or are a little concerned about what, how, what they sponsor with that oil money. You may take some of the, the steps out from underneath them as well. 
Well, it's certainly right that um, uh, I think Canada is the kind of society that sets the highest standards in the world for the production of its oil. We don't use the revenue that we raise from oil to finance uh, terrorism or uh, nasty activities either domestically or internationally. We use the money uh, from uh, our natural resources, including oil and gas, uh, to finance public services, uh, uh, jobs, uh, and uh, generally speaking, um, Canada, I think, is the sort of place we want to see producing more of this because we do it to a very high standard. We have heard for a long time now that the federal Liberals are in favor of this pipeline, and yet i got to tell you, I'm, I, when I hear this and then I see actions, is it wrong? Is it, is it weird that I find myself unconvinced that they really want this to happen? Well, you know, I, I think the federal government is in a very uh, difficult position because they're trying to ride two horses that are going in two different directions. On the one hand, you know, the, the, um, the Liberals came to power in the last election by appealing, amongst others, to the environmental movement. Uh, and God knows we all want the uh, environment in Canada to be uh, maintained at the highest possible standard. But uh, they, they appealed to them in part by saying, look, we're going to bring in a carbon tax. We're going to raise the regulatory burden on the oil and gas industry. Uh, we're going to reform the National Energy Board so that there are tougher rules for the uh, oil and gas industry. And in exchange, we think uh, we should be able to get approval for uh, uh, for pipelines that the industry needs to get their product to market. So they made promises to the environmental movement. They made promises to the industry. The problem is that the environmental movement, uh, frankly, is, is not interested in any kind of compromise. The, the more radical elements in the environmental movement are simply opposed to pipelines. They, there is nothing we can do that will win their agreement for the expansion of pipeline. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Brian Lee Crawley, who's the managing director of the McDonald Laurier Institute, a nonpartisan political think tank in Ottawa, about the pipeline that everyone's been talking about. And just before the break, Brian was mentioning how the federal liberals have kind of made promises to both sides, the environmentalists and the business side of this, which puts them in an awkward position. But Brian, where this really starts to get confusing for me is we understand now that the liberals have, have kind of positioned themselves in a, in a bit of a bind. But they say they still want this. They say they still think this should go through. And yet British Columbia has now said, no, no, you can't do this, which means British Columbia, as I understand it, is trumping, pardon the pun, but trumping the wants or desires of an entire country. How does that work? Well, look, you've got to remember that when the British Columbia government says, you know, we're going to try and stop this, that doesn't mean that they necessarily have the power to do so. They're making a claim that they're going to try and stop it, and they're, you know, they're going to go to court and they're going to do uh, whatever it is they think uh, they have the power to do. But the fact of the matter is that um, uh, Ottawa has, under the Constitution and uh, uh, under a number of judicial decisions that have been made over the years, Ottawa has the undoubted power under the Constitution and the law of Canada to approve pipeline construction. So what British Columbia is doing is they're they're signaling to their population, look, uh, some British Columbians don't like this. We're on your side. Uh, We're going to make a lot of noise about this. 
going to try and scare off uh, Ottawa, going to try and scare off the company, which they may well end up doing. Uh, but uh, it's a different matter to say that British Columbia actually has the power in law to accomplish this. And I think the answer is they don't have the power. They can they can scare people and they can threaten and they can do all kinds of other things. But if if this ever came, you know, before a judge and uh, Ottawa said, judge, which is it? Does British Columbia have the power to stop this or do we have the power to approve it? The judge is going to say, Ottawa, you have the power to approve this. Well, because the implications of the alternative would be pretty obvious that every then every province would be its own kingdom and the federal government would essentially be powerless to do anything. Well, in fact, this is exactly why we created Canada in 1867, because, you know, uh, you, you might know that before 1867, there were literally customs booths on the borders between what became Ontario and Quebec and Nova Scotia and uh, uh, New Brunswick and so on. Uh, we, we charged tariffs on each other's products. I mean, it was to get rid of all that stuff and to make a single country out of what had been all these disparate individual separate little units. Uh, and um, the, when we created Canada in 1867, we created a federal government and gave it power to create a, to, a, a legal framework so that national projects like the CPR and the pipelines and others could be built without individual provinces being able to stop it. And this is why we have a federal government. So is it inevitable that this ends up in court then? Or are there, are there things, and, and, you know, someone raised this today and I hadn't really thought of it, uh, but it, it was an interesting proposal. And they said, look, if BC is going to be obstinate about this, you could take this thing to court and it could take years to go through the system. Or could the federal government simply say, you know what, until you decide you're going to let this happen, we're cutting off federal funding for all your projects, deal with it. They can't do that, could they? They could, could they take a financial position against a province that was not aligning itself with federal policy and financially penalize it? Well, you know, there's some room for that. I mean, for uh, not for things like the uh, Canada Health Transfer, uh, which you know is is done under law, and uh, there's not much the federal government can do about those transfers or equalization, but. Um, uh, things like the infrastructure money that uh, they uh, make available, they could say, "Look, British Columbia, you don't have access to that until you uh, uh, until you play by the rules." But I got to tell you that um, I, I actually think that um, British Columbia has made it very clear that uh, money is not the issue here. They're not doing this for money purposes, and so I think threatening to withhold money, I'm not really sure that that's going to get the job done. I, I'm pretty sure that what has to happen is that we have to call British Columbia's bluff, that uh, Ottawa has to say, look, this pipeline is going to be built. Uh, we are going to protect the construction project. Uh, if anybody tries to interfere with it, they will be hauled up before the courts so fast their head will spin. We will get injunctions that will stop, you know, for example, the province of British Columbia from trying to uh, obstruct the project. I wouldn't go to court and say, Gee, uh, uh, Supreme Court of Canada, let's say, uh, will you yet again state that we have the power in Ottawa to, to do this? That, that, there's no point in doing that. That's clear. What we need to do is we need to put uh, British Columbia in the, in the hot seat and make it clear to them that they're breaking the law by trying to prevent this pipeline from being built. And I think when that happens, uh, they'll think twice about it because it's a pretty serious business for a government in Canada to defy the law. 
Yeah, I mean it's it's really interesting. We got to go. Unfortunately, it's really interesting because the the polls show that there's so it's so even right there now, which means not only are the liberals dancing around which way to go in this thing, but the BC government now looks like they're in a bit of a bind. They can't back down without losing half their support. Um, yeah, it, it is. I don't think this one's going away anytime soon, even though maybe a lot of people would like it to be sorted out. Um, but you know, Brian, I'm sure you and I will be talking about this again before too long, because this, as I say, is, is not being resolved. I wouldn't expect in the next little, little while. Brian Lee Crowley, managing director of the McDonald Laurier Institute. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you for doing this. Great to talk to you, Scott. Thanks so much. That is, uh, that is a topic that boy, you talk about in politics. Getting yourself into a bind, getting yourself into a pickle where you have positioned yourself so that no matter what you do, you're losing half your support. This is it for the B.C. government and for the federal liberal government. And until they get some geniuses who pop in and say, hey, here's a way out of it where you can save face and still maintain some of your support from that side that's going to be disenfranchised. I don't see how this thing starts to resolve itself. Because neither of those people, neither of those groups, neither of those governments want to suddenly chop off their nose to spite their face. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. There is a story that you, many of you will have heard this over the past few days. Because it is so unbelievable that I'm sure you picked it up somewhere or someone at work or at your coffee shop or whatever else said, Did you hear that story? For those who didn't, let me tell you what this was. It comes from Russia, and there was a woman who needed some kind of laparoscopic procedure. It was apparently not a wildly invasive or wildly serious surgery, but she needed some kind of surgery done. And the story goes that she was to be given a saline drip as she was knocked out before the surgery, but instead, ready for this, was giving embalming fluid, which killed her, not surprisingly. Well... Later, we have learned that story, which you may have heard, was slightly exaggerated. The story, as it turns out, probably now is more accurate, more close to the truth, as horrible as that was, is that she wasn't given a drip of formalin, which is the drug that they were talking about, but on the surgical site on her body where she was supposed to be cut open, they, instead of a saline wipe or saline wash, they used that stuff which is toxic, and when they cut her open, then it poisoned her and she died. Same ending, maybe not quite as spectacular a mistake as we had originally thought. Now, regardless, we know this happens in Russia. This is not in Canada. This is a long way away. Still, when I heard this, I will be honest, the first question that came to mind was, what checks and balances are in place here to make sure that something like that wouldn't happen? This is a crazy mistake, regardless of which way it is. But surely there are things here in Canada that we do to ensure that something like that could never happen. So if we go to, and for example, we go to the hospital to get our right knee replaced. How do we make sure that we don't wake up with our left knee replaced by accident? Or if we go in to get our appendix out, that we suddenly have our kidney removed or... You know, you say it sounds crazy. Both of those things have happened. You can find reports of those online. Anne-Marie McDonald is the Surgical Program Director at St. Joseph's Healthcare. She joins us now. Thanks so much for doing this tonight. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, before we even get to the patients, and and, and most of us listening would ultimately be patients. We're not going to be doctors. I'm not going to be a doctor anytime soon. But I do imagine that on top of whatever fear or concern patients would have, This would be the nightmare scenario and a great fear of surgeons as well. They would never want to see something like this happen. 
Absolutely. Uh, Surgeons, nurses, allied health team members, anyone that's involved with patient care, you're absolutely right. This is your worst nightmare. And there's actually a lot of work that's been done on um, people that have unfortunately been involved in very tragic incidents such as this, and they, they label them the second victim. Because, you know, as you can well appreciate, we all come to work every day uh, with the sole intent of doing our best uh, to take care of patients and, and uh, perform optimally. And unfortunately, as human beings, uh, we do sometimes make mistakes. So you're absolutely right. Uh, we put in a lot of checks and balances in the system to do our, you know, our utmost to prevent uh, tragic accidents such as the one you described in Russia from from ever happening to our patients. Okay, so let's go through those checks and balances. And again, this is, um, there are many people listening, I'm sure, who have had a procedure. Many people have had to undergo general anesthetic, which is kind of a helpless feeling because you're not awake when this is happening. There's nothing you can do about it. So let's use the example that I gave in the top there. I go into hospital to have my right knee replaced. Okay. So I am now a, coming a in. I'm checking in. It really starts uh, in your doctor's office when you sign your consent. Your, you and your doctor agree that you're going to have your right knee done. And then the doctor books the case and sends us the consent form. And prior to you even arriving uh, uh, at the hospital, the uh, this electronic system has been uh, primed to make sure that it describes that you're having a right knee replacement booked. Uh, on the day of surgery when you arrive, you come into our day surgery area and the nursing team checks you in and they review with you all of the things that, uh, you know, may uh, optimally keep you safe, that you're having your right knee done, that you have or have not got any allergies, that you have or have not eaten that day if you were asked not to eat, what medications you're on, all of those, uh, we call them sort of our admission checklists are done just to make sure that we know as much about you as we possibly can to keep you safe during your procedure. The surgeon then, prior to us even sending you down to the operating room, comes up and has a chat with you and reviews your charts and says to you, Scott, I understand that uh, we're doing a right knee procedure on you today, and when you agree and the nurse agrees and the surgeon agrees, he literally signs his name or, or, or writes something on your right knee in a, with a sterile pen. So a few minutes later, the, the porter brings you down to the operating room, and then the nurse checks you in, and she goes through a lot of those uh, check, uh, checklist items again about allergies, did the surgeon mark your knee? Is it your right knee? Is everybody certain? All of those checks are done again. But before we put you under anesthesia, everyone on the team stops, and either the nurse, the anesthetist, or one of the surgeons in the room will go through what we call our surgical safety checklist in our briefing. So with the patient, while the patient's awake, we go through a series of prescribed questions to make sure everyone in the new room knows exactly what procedure we're doing today, exactly that we have all the right equipment we need to do that procedure, uh, that if you're on any special medication or have any kind of special needs that uh, would make you uh, at risk for anything untoward, that all of that is clear. And that happens prior to you being put to sleep. You go to sleep, and then we have what we call our timeout. And Anne-Marie, let me jump in. Anne-Marie, let me jump in. Hold on. We all stop and we make sure yet again that the patient is well and truly the right patient, the right procedure, um, 
all of the right medications are in line and everything is a go before we actually uh, uh, give the surgeon the scalpel to do the first cut. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Anne-Marie McDonald, who is the Surgical Program Director at St. Joseph's Healthcare, about how we make sure that there are not medical mistakes that happen. This is in light of a story in Russia, mind you, long way away, uh, where a horrible mistake led to a woman dying in surgery. Anne-Marie, one of the things, though, before we came to the break that struck me is that you were describing, if I were to check in and have a procedure, from, as I understand what you're saying, I would probably, before I got knocked out, I would probably have been asked three or four times to go over a whole bunch of stuff to make sure the right thing was being done. It sounds like it's not a one-time thing that a mistake could happen. That's absolutely right. Uh, I think sometimes patients wonder if we listen to them the first couple of times because we do ask them (laughs) several times. And uh, we just want to make absolutely sure that uh, we've confirmed everything at every every possible juncture in care. And we learned a lot of this from the airline industry where, you know, checklists really have uh, have been in place for many, many years that, uh, you know, keep our planes safe and make sure that all the buttons and knobs are are working properly, and we've adapted and adopted a lot of their um, uh, safety uh, uh, initiatives to the healthcare system, and and it's working. I have to say, very very well. We do catch the odd mistake, which makes us feel like uh, we're doing the right thing. There is clearly, though, and this is interesting, because while the doctors and nurses are being paid to do this. When you bring this up, there is clearly some onus on the patient, though, to be paying attention to what you're asking and to be mentally engaged not to have checked out when they arrive. If they're being asked, there has got to be some of the... uh, It's on them to some degree to answer the questions. Yeah, you know what? Our preference is obviously that patients really engaged in their care. And, uh, you know, most of the patients are. uh, Most patients are more than willing to participate and we tell them what it is we're doing and why we're doing it and, and that really it's, it's for the best possible outcome for them. You know, 99% of patients are able to help. Of course, we do have, have patients that either for, you know, they're too sick or, or, or they just for some reason, you know, the communication isn't great, they can't help us. And at those times, we'll more often than not involve families uh, to, uh, to help us with that. So um, it's all about a team, and, and uh, the patient is... Uh, biggest part of the healthcare team each and every day here with us. We all want to work together to, you know, provide the best possible care and to keep uh, the patient safe. There is a, there is one tricky part about that, though, I would suspect, and that is, and, and I'm, I'm sure you've come across this as well, there are a lot of people who are shy about speaking up sometimes because they don't want to sound stupid or they don't want to be questioning the doctor or questioning the nurse because they assume those people know what they're talking about and I don't have a clue about it. Does that ever arise? Does, does there ever have to be someone who says, it's okay if you say anything to us? Yes, absolutely. We say that to our patients all the time. You know, you know your health better than we do, so please, please tell us. Uh, a good example of that is uh, we really would like patients to tell us if they notice, for example, that someone's come to the bedside without washing their hands. And we have had that exact experience you described where patients are really reluctant to do that because it feels rude. But at the end of the day... You are the best possible person to uh, ensure that your health care is optimal. So we really do encourage patients to, uh, to, you know, to tell us what they're thinking, to voice any concerns. And that's part of often the, the conversation the surgeon has when they go up to do the marking is, is anything worrying you today? Have we done everything well? 
And we kind of ask that again at the briefing. You know, is there absolutely anything that you're worried about that we haven't discussed? Um, and we try to make it a calm, as calm as can be, uh, relaxed environment. You know, we, we, uh, we really want our patients to feel like um, um, they can tell us what they need to tell us and, and we'll do our best to respect any, any thoughts they have. Anne-Marie, one more thing, and that is this, that this particular case, and again, this is, this is not something that happened in Hamilton. I want to reiterate that. This is not a Hamilton case we're talking about. It's just, it's bizarre, quite frankly. But once you're in the operating room and you are knocked out, the anesthetic has kicked in, uh, even if this woman had been awake, she probably would have had no idea what was going on. Are there layers of people to make sure that if a nurse were to make a mistake, that somebody else might actually catch this mistake before it is problematic? Yeah, that actual error um, happened probably in this country many years ago as well. Um, uh, we it wouldn't happen here now because we don't put solutions like formalin and formalin in little bowls sitting on operating room tables. But in the past, that would happen, and they'd often have a piece of tape across that said formalin, and there may be another little bowl with a piece of tape across that said saline. That doesn't happen anymore. We have very specific packaging. We have very specific. Um, uh, even um, barcoded uh, uh, medications that truly prevent those sorts of errors from happening. We, um, we have a policy we call our high-risk medication policy. This wouldn't have, uh, uh, it's, not a, it's not exactly the same scenario, but if we have a medication, for example, on the OR table or even on the inpatient ward that you're giving, giving a, a patient and it's a, a listed as a very high-risk high medication, um, two nurses often will check that off together. Or in the OR, maybe in a nurse and an anesthetist would check that off together prior to administration. So um, the checks and balances when the patient are, is asleep are um, absolutely vital and part of, part of our work each and every day. Anne-Marie McDonald, the Surgical Program Director at St. Joseph's Healthcare. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. It is, um, it is one, you know, you hear this story, and again, Crazy story from a long way away, but if you've ever had surgery, uh, and I have, you've been out cold, you've been out, you've had the anesthetic, and you sometimes go, Man, is it possible that there could be a mistake? And of course, there could be mistakes, but it certainly, listening to Anne-Marie and hearing other people, it certainly sounds like we are at a point now where the chances of something catastrophically stupid, and that's what this really sounds like, catastrophically stupid happening are far, far less. Makes you feel a little bit better, actually makes you feel a lot better about going into a surgery in Canada or in Hamilton as opposed to perhaps doing it somewhere in the outskirts in Russia. No insult, Russia, but I'll think I'll have my surgeries done here. <laughs> You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. I'm trying to think, I was trying to think as I was starting to... Th- as I read this story that I'll be introducing in a moment, what is the worst job or the most uncomfortable job, perhaps not worst job, the worst job. There's a lot of bad jobs out there. There's a lot of really bad jobs that people have to do. I'm not talking about those. I'm not talking about, you know, next hour, we're going to be talking about serial killers. I'm not talking about cleaning up crime scenes or something. That's I'm not, that's not the kind of thing. What's the worst most uncomfortable job to do. And I was thinking, okay, like garbage man would probably not be on my list of something I'd want to spend a lot of time doing, especially in a hot summer day. Uh, you ever heard about the people who their job is, and this is a real job, armpit sniffer who have to test deodorant 
that would not seem to me to be a great job to have. Um, grave digger, not a, not a highlight job I wouldn't think to have. But then I came across this story from Rhode Island. I'm pretty sure this may be among the more uncomfortable. Now, not uncomfortable for everybody, I grant you. Some people probably think this is the greatest thing ever, although I'd be a little concerned. Well, I'd be concerned about sunburn. There is a nudist campground that is looking for a lifeguard for its pool. And they apparently are having a real hard time finding someone who wants to work as a lifeguard at a nudist resort. And I don't know. I I wouldn't do it. I don't want to do it. But I'm sure there there must be someone out there who thinks that this would be a terrific way to spend your summer, right? Let me bring Ben in here for a second. Ben's on the other side of the glass right now. He uh, looks a little uncomfortable with the whole topic. Would you ever want to be a lifeguard at a nudist resort? My one concern is, does the lifeguard have to be nude? Well, see, not necessarily, they say. Which is probably for the best, because sitting in that tall white chair in the direct sunlight for the whole summer, as I say, you could probably suffer some severe burns to parts of you that don't want to have severe burns. But you have an even tan. Yeah. So the campground, uh, you know, is, um, oh, I, by the way, I love the fact that the name of the person who is doing the search, Jim Johnson. I love the fact that the guy's name is Johnson, who's looking for the nudist lifeguard. But nonetheless... I just, I'm thinking of this and, you know, if it comes a time, it's bad enough. I mean, being a lifeguard is a valuable thing. I I applaud all the lifeguards out there because if the day ever comes that you need to be saved, I want to have a fully qualified good lifeguard who will do that. But I don't know if I, if you have to yank someone out of the pool who's not doing well, I don't know if I want to be pulling out a 300 pound hairy dude who's got no pants on. I, that it just throws me off. It's kind of a it's it's a thing that even if he was wearing a speedo, somehow it seems a little bit better. A little bit, not well, much, but just just a little bit. I don't know. It's, it, this just just falls into my my list of jobs that I really, really am not interested in participating in. And there's others. There's there's lots of other jobs that probably would fall into the not interested in participating. Yeah, participating. I thought I said that word wrong. And I'll tell you another one. And it goes back to this. And maybe this is a body thing that I've got going on. Maybe I'm just uncomfortable with the human form or something. I've never understood anybody who wants to be a waxer. That, That to me seems like another horrible, horrible job that again involves other people's body. But the the lifeguard at the nude call, and we probably should have called. There are some... They call them naturist resorts around here. I don't even know if they're open right now. I, if you are work, if you're hanging out at a naturist resort when it's two degrees outside, you are far braver than I. <laughs> that is something you really don't want to see. There's a bunch of guys hanging out when it's almost freezing in a n- nude resort. I'd be even more concerned if they have a polar bear dip of their own. Anyway, I, I just I'd love to know if people would actually want to do this job. I, I, as far as I know, it pays the same as other as other lifeguard places. Frank just writes in and he goes, he would cleaning out sewers would be the worst as far as he's concerned. Here's the other thing. Hollywood has kind of made the nudist colony into something that from everything else I've heard, I've never been to one. I don't anticipate I will ever be to one, 
But Hollywood has kind of made the nudist colony into a hangout for Playboy models and fitness guys. Everything I've heard about the average naturist resort is, that's not it. (laughs) You are not staring at the world's fittest people all the time. It's average people. And again, I, I can live, I can live without this one. But let me know, Radley at 900CHML.com, is this a job that you would ever want to have, to be a lifeguard at a nudist colony? There's a number of reasons why I would not want to do this. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900CHML. Several weeks ago, we had this woman on the show because we were chatting about the killings in the Toronto Gay District, and Gay Village, and she had been involved in... Well, some of her work had actually proven to be fruitful in coming up with who the person was, or at least the, some information about who the suspect might be. And at that time, after I had her on, I said, we got to do more on this because it's such an interesting topic. Sasha Reed is a Hamiltonian who is just doing her PhD. She's finishing soon in understanding, now get this, understanding the motivations and actions of serial killers. In the media, she's usually referred to simply as a serial killer researcher, which, you know, a little simpler, but um, looks really, really cool on a business card, I suspect, to say serial, you know, it's like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, serial killer researcher is not quite the same, but I would think serial killer researcher is kind of a cool title to have. It's a bit of a mouthful. It's probably not the official (laughs) one. Your card will have something far more intellectual on it. What would would the actual title be if you had to reduce it to a, a name? Professor and consultant. Of? Serial homicide. So as soon as you throw the serial homicide in, everyone says, okay, all right. <laughs> no, because that, I mean, it's one of those things. What When you tell people what you do, because I don't know what a serial homicide consultant is supposed to be or look like or whatever. Uh, so I don't know what they would think when they look at you. But when you say, yeah, I investigate or I help research serial killings, do people go, sorry, what? Well, parties are all always fun. Uh, <laughs> the response is, see, my partner, I'm so fortunate because he can just explain himself very easily. He is a doctor. And when I have to explain myself, I have to say I'm a, a researcher, I'm a PhD student. And then they inevitably ask, what do you study? And I always grapple with whether or not to say serial homicide because as soon as I say that, somebody's going to ask a million questions. Of course. <laughs> so people usually, when they find out what I study, they either say, wow, that's amazing, and then have those million questions. Or they will say, oh, okay, and they'll Nobody walk away. Nobody says that. No, they do. I think it's because they need to take a little bit of time, digest that information, and then they'll come back. No, they do come they back. Do come and back. then have the million questions. <laughs> and then the last person says, why? Just shock and awe. Why? <laughs> Well, this has been now, and I'm going to jump all over the place today, but this has, it seems to me that this investigating serial homicide, maybe I'm way off. It seems like it's been mostly men though, who have done this in the past. It's largely been a male thing. Am I right? I I agree with you. I think criminology is a field that's primarily dominated by men. It's, it's changing uh, as we speak, but this, the field of serial homicide research is almost primarily men. In fact, all of my collaborators, they're extraordinary people, all men. Why? I don't know. Um, the only, I guess the only explanation I have 
comes from the students, the female students who I work with right now. So I have a, a research group of about 10, 15 people, and a huge majority, I think 90% of those are women. And I ask them, you know, why, why, why aren't you pursuing this if this is something you're so interested in? And inevitably, the response is, I didn't know it was an option. I had no idea this was an option. I think the fact is they just never see a female role model studying serial homicide. It's always men. James Fox, Robert, um, Robert Ressler, Eric Beauregard, Michael Lamont. These are amazing people, extraordinary researchers, all men. So why, where was your interest in this? Every, everyone has to find their way to this. And, and you've got a, a, I don't know if the right word is a passion for it. You've got a great interest in it. Where did that come from? Passion is the right word. Is it? <laughs> and uh, there was actually a New York Times reporter who talked to me about a couple of years ago, and he asked the exact same question. We spent four hours talking about how it is I got into this. So I'll give you the cliff notes. Um, I was born and raised in this beautiful little town. It was so small, and I, I lived across from this forest. And I guess I just had a very active imagination, and I always believed that monsters, vampires, witches, werewolves just lived in the forest. I loved the idea of being scared. I loved monsters. And since I was a kid, I just dedicated my entire life to learning more about monsters and the occult. And as I grew up, I realized that monsters, in that kind of sense, don't really exist. But there are people among us whose actions can be construed as monstrous. And then I dedicated my entire life to studying them. Why, though? Because you, you talk about it like it's a, it's a, uh, not a, a like. Your interest is in the monsters, but is the interest that, why stick with that? Because monsters, nobody wants to be around monsters. No, my my personal interest is in having an experience of personal victimization. It's really this this whole story of I felt personally victimized. Um, I felt alone. I spent a lot of my childhood in a library just trying to read up about people who victimize others. And one day I came across Robert Hare's book. It's called Without Conscience. Um, and it's all about psychopaths. And as I was reading through this book, I was just checkmarking all of these things. Uh, the person who had been victimizing me fit so perfectly everything in that book. And the second I understood that, I understood them. And the second I understood them, I understood why I was being victimized. And then at that point, no longer was I a victim. I was free. The trauma that had, I guess, that I had been exposed to was completely gone and lifted. So being able to understand my own victimization and understanding why people do what they do made me want to do the same for others. Do you ha do you think you have to have had something like that to be in this? Does mm. it, when the people you're talking about who get into this line of work, does there have to be some deeper reason? Because it's very dark. It's, ve it's very <laughs> dark. Does there have to be some motivation like that, that I want to solve something that I lived through? Not necessarily. You could have had a, a role model growing up and they studied crime or they were a police officer and you just fell in love with their field because you fell in love with them. Um, you don't necessarily need any kind of trauma or victimization. I think this is kind of a narrative that media loves to exploit just because it's so interesting learning about people's backstories and seeing how that kind of culminates in, in studies like this. But not everybody has been exposed to similar traumas. Do you think that most people are interested in this? See, I do. I think that most, I believe that most people would deny that they find this fascinating. I'm sure many people listening right now, if someone walked into the room and they said, what are you doing? Uh, I don't know if they would answer because you're listening to someone talking about, we're going to get to it, but serial killers. Mm -hmm. But I think there is a wide 
fascination with this topic. We don't like it, but they're wildly interested in it. They're wildly interested. I I mean, I have a very small frame of reference just because I'm stuck in this little ivory tower with other people who study the same things as me. So everyone I know is fascinated in it. And the people that I talk to are excited about it. But beyond that, I mean... It's it's no coincidence that crime dramas and things like Mindhunter and Criminal Minds, CSI, are so popular. There's a million shows about it. There's so many, and, and they just keep growing. So I think it is, people are fascinated in understanding not only crimes, people want to kind of peer into this world. Um, there's a voyeuristic element to it in the sense that by peeking behind that curtain of criminality, people can better understand, I think, an element of themselves that they don't want to to see and that is the capacity for every human being to be violent. You think that every human being could be a killer? Mm, not exactly. But, okay, consider this. Okay, thought experiment. I love these. All right. So today is today. Take away water, food, warmth. Take away buildings. Take away gas, electricity. Take away all your comforts. How long is it going to take for you to kill somebody? Well, I have no answer to that question <laughs> but for obvious reasons because we don't – I mean, it's never been a situation to – I mean, if it, was a, if it was a Hunger Games kind of thing where literally it was you or someone else and there was one bit of food left. I, but the difference, I think, is that I, I would assume most of the people that you would be studying aren't killing people because they are in a world where it's fighting for the last – piece of meat or last piece of vegetable no. or something or last bit of water. No, not at all. They're doing this because of some weird compulsion or desire or I don't know. What is it? It's a little more complex than that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not that every person is susceptible to becoming a serial killer. That's not true at all. But every person is susceptible to some form of violence. It, it, we're human beings, right? Now, serial killers... Kill male or female? Male or female. Mostly oh. male. I s currently, I'm studying male sexually motivated psychopathic serial killers exclusively. That's who I'm studying. Um, but women are equally capable. You're thinking of violence. Every person is capable of violence. Every person is capable of violence. Okay. I don't see why not. Um, but serial killers don't kill because they lack food or water or anything like that. There's no Hunger Games scenario going on there that you can see. It's very much going on inside their minds, inside their heads. So serial killers are people, not all of them, again, my sample is sexually motivated, psychopathic males. So these are people who fundamentally feel isolated and alone, who feel emasculated, that they lack autonomy, power, and control. These are people who can understand the human dynamic and the human dimension of killing another person. They know what that means. They know what that entails. But So they understand. They understand it. Of course they do. But they don't care. They diminish that human aspect in order to satisfy a psychological need for themselves at a certain moment. So does that, again, does that mean that under certain circumstances, every person could do that? No. No, because when you're thinking about serial killers, you're talking about people who have been exposed to a unique combination of developmental events, which drove them into a very complex fantasy world as children. That fantasy world was fed into and was built on this foundation of sadism and violence, um, just because of potential abuse, um, lack of 
I guess, adequate parenting and whatever. There's a bunch of other things that I won't get into. But they build themselves this nice fantasy world in which they can obtain power and control over their own worlds in a way that they don't actually have real power control. And this serves as a form of solace for them. This is their place of respite. They'll go there to be in peace and calm. At a certain point, though, what happens is the experience, the feeling that they get, the feeling of peace that they get from being in this fantasy world fades, just like an addict with withdrawal. You can only do so much before you know the effects start to diminish. At a certain point, the fantasy no longer gives you that feeling of solace. What you need to do instead is begin to actually actualize that fantasy. And again, those fantasies are things that were built on themes of violence, domination, um, sex, control. And are those... When you find these people later on, are there a lot of constants? Are there a lot of things in common with one after the other after the other that you look and you say, yeah, I can see where those things are in common with person after person after person? Well, what's interesting in in my study, and again, I'm going to be very academic about this. You have to realize that my sample was very small. I had about 17 people that I, I looked at. But it was interesting to note that they all unanimously perceived the world the same way. They all perceived it as outsiders looking in, as victims, um, experiencing injustice day in and day out by authorities, by everybody. So they all had this. They all withdrew into some form of fantasy. They all had described their homicides through a lens of compulsion and need and psychological desire. So yeah, there's definitely similarities. There's a lot of people, though, that have would feel like outsiders that may have been abused, that whatever. What makes certain, because, I mean, if you were going to go to a, I don't know where, I mean, there's lots of places where people like this may congregate because they have something in common, but you wouldn't just say, all right, here's where we're going to have our entire pool of psycho killers, round them up and put them away. So what makes the ones who would do this do it? Well, that's a really good question. It's one that my dissertation is currently exploring. And now keep in mind, I'm about a year away from finishing. (laughs) So I've got some half answers for you. So you have individuals who experience the same thing. They might have inadequate parents in the sense that the parents weren't emotionally responsive. They might have been uh, traumatized, experienced abuse, whatever. This happens to a lot of people, right? Unfortunately, it does. does. And most but they're not people, all psycho killers. No, most people don't become psychopaths or serial killers. So how is it? What is it that makes people... By the way, people... is psycho killer a, a, a term that is okay to use or no? <laughs> no. No, okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I, I, I said it the second time. I no, thought, oh, that's probably no. I should check on that one. Because psycho, I don't even know what that is. That's not even a real word. Psychopath, this is a clinical personality right. disorder, right? Okay. Okay. <laughs> so psychopathic serial killers, go ahead and use it. <laughs> So these, but again, you were continuing that these people, they don't, they may all have a similar background, but they don't all end up down the same path. Exactly. Now, this is where my work comes in. So a lot of the research that we've done with serial killers in the past has looked at what kind of environmental exposures do they have? So were they abused? When were they abusing animals? Were they? Were they setting fires? We're looking at all these things that happen throughout their development. But what we're not doing, what we haven't really done thoroughly is peel back behind the what happened and look instead in their minds and see how were they experiencing that. So how one person experiences abuse is completely different than how another person experiences abuse. And depending on a person's um, resilience and their ability to adapt, which is very much biological, um, a person can be resilient to abuse in the sense that they'll experience it, but they will be okay. 
mentally, socially, emotionally, they're, they're going to be okay. Whereas another person who lacks resilience will be impacted much more severely. Are there tests for that? Can you test that somehow? I think there are current tests. Um, I'm not too sure what they are at the moment. But what my work is doing is looking at serial killers talking about their experiences of abuse and talking about how they viewed their moms and their dads and why they are, they're motivated to do what they do. And we analyze those and try to get a sense of what are the common themes that are going through their imaginations or their, their heads when they're talking about things like abuse. And in them, you see such deep, deep discussions about, I feel isolated, I feel completely alone. I want to harm other people. And that they gives them inadequate. some kind of that gives them some kind of relief. The idea of withdrawing, and this is another thing also. So you can have a person who experiences abuse, another person who doesn't. The one who's resilient, you know, might have friends that they're also able to talk to. Serial killers experience their childhoods very much as loners. So they don't really have anyone to talk to about the abuse that they're experiencing or about the negative feelings that they're having. And so they're forced to kind of draw inwards and rely on themselves socially and emotionally. And so in order to cope, what they do is create elaborate, elaborate fantasy worlds where they do assume positions of power, dominance, authority, and control. And this, this is where it starts to get a little pathological. And do all the cases that you studied, have all the cases started as children, started with trauma in their childhood? No, no, one, no one becomes this at 30 years old all of a sudden because of a marital breakup or something like that? It's actually, it's a really hard question, just because when you look at what serial killers are exposed to across their lifetime... Some, some experience catastrophic, traumatic abuse, abuse that no person ever should be exposed to, whereas others are exposed to really minor things. Their parents are a little nitpicky, they don't get mad, or they get mad when the kid's not doing their homework properly. Now, what's important is not what they're exposed to, it's how they perceive these exposures. So I've had serial killers who've experienced absolutely horrendous abuse, by parents, physical, sexual, emotional. And then I've had serial killers whose parents got mad at them for not doing their homework. Both of them interpreted those interactions equally, which is really fascinating. It's quite interesting. So this is why you're not going to see consistently all serial killers being abused or traumatized as children, at least not overtly. It's the way that they're perceiving those actions. But it sounds like all of these perceived abuses or perceived problems are all having their germs planted in childhood, though. Very, very early. Yeah, between ages of zero to five. Wow. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. In studio with Sasha Reed, who is a Hamilton-based serial killer researcher. I think you may be the only Hamilton-based serial killer researcher. I, I mean, how many of you are there anywhere in Canada? Many? Five in Canada. That's There's- it? I, there may be more, so I may be wrong, but I, I'm pretty sure because I know Well, there all may be some people. hobbyists. There's hobbyists and there's people who are interested. I mean, there's definitely people at universities who are interested but aren't experts. So we've got Dr. Eric Beauregard at Simon Fraser University, who's lighting it up. He's amazing. Um, Dr. Michael Arnfeld, who's also just incredible. Peter Vronsky at Ryerson. Um, Professor Haggerty uh, in Alberta and myself. These are the people that I it's know. It's a small group. A small all right. Group. We've been talking about the origins of where 
someone who might become a serial killer. And it happens, you said zero to five. Birth to five generally is when this is sort of burned into their brain that this, mm. or the starting of the starting of the, the foundations, I guess. Of I would this. definitely say the foundations, but not the burning into the brain because I feel that's very deterministic. So okay. there's always times, I mean, human development is this unfolding, ongoing process. They have a choice? They have, to a certain extent, right? Human development, you don't just have some experience and then that's it. You're done for the rest of life. Um, it's what goes on throughout your life when these things occur. Uh, how deeply are you feeling these things and how long does it take for them to unfold? But does, a, does someone then, does a psychological serial killer have the capacity to say, I'm not going to kill? Yes. Okay, so there, it's a choice. It's a choice. It's not a compulsion that is beyond the control. It may be a compulsion, but not beyond the control to be able to determine that I'm not going to do this. Yes. Okay. Because the the flip side would be if it's beyond their control, they may be perceived as a victim then of this as well. We're not saying they're a victim. Yeah. No. So what we have to, to realize is that, again, when you're looking at psychopathic, sexually motivated serial killers, these are people who are in touch with reality. They are not schizophrenic. They are not out of touch with reality. They are not, you know, caught in the middle of dissociation. They are here in the world, present, and they know right from wrong. At a moment in time when they kill, they are overwhelmed and overcome by feelings of, I have to do this. And that's the compulsive aspect. But they can stop. You can stop them. Um, well, it's a choice. so this is not mental illness, I guess is the point. People would argue that this is, you'd be, it's not a technical word, but you'd be crazy. You have to be crazy. if you, You're not saying this is mental illness. This is a decision still they're making. Yeah, crazy, mad, mental illness, evil, monsters. These are all terms that I loathe because they're simple. They're simple and they completely ignore the complexity of human decision-making, of human development. These are not crazy, quote, quote, people. These are people who made a decision for whatever reason, and that's it. And I've always wondered this because if someone is driven by, we hear that they're, you know it's a compulsion. If they're driven by this compulsion that they have to kill or else they will whatever, why, what happens when they go to prison then and they don't have the capacity to be able to kill someone? Oh, that's a great question. Oh, I'm happy you asked that. Well, no one be, ever does. <laughs> well, because it would seem to me that if you, if you have to or else your brain will explode, basically. Okay. When you can't kill anymore... Surely your brain would explode and you would see, but they don't. They seem to be, they can be locked up and then controlled and they live, many of them, a long life. Okay, so I might get tangential, so you might have to bring me back, okay? Because this is exciting for me. So, serial killers do experience a compulsion. And this compulsion, what it feels like is, I have to do this. I am so discomforted by not being able to do this. I guess, I mean, it's such a bad comparison because addicts aren't serial killers, but the feeling that they get of needing a fix, quote, okay. um, is so strong that it is absolutely painful, physically painful for them not to follow through with a homicide. This is why it's called compulsive, right? Now, with regard to going to prison, now you have to remember that serial killers, a big part of their motivation for wanting to kill in the first place is because they feel unheard, unseen, belittled, emasculated. But interestingly enough, What happens is there's this really symbiotic relationship between the media and serial killers. And once a serial killer is caught and in prison, what happens is the fan mail floods in and everything they've ever wanted is there. They are 
idolized. They're godlike. For I don't know who, 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 why people do this, but they do. And so it feeds into the sense of narcissism and entitlement, and I am seen and I am powerful. And so I feel that a compulsion to kill may still exist, but at the end of the day, that thing that they really craved to be seen, to be heard, to be powerful, to be perceived of as, as godlike is being met with fan mail. Women are abused, sadly, as children. Girls are abused as children. Girls are in families or situations where their childhoods can be terrible as well. Mm -hmm. Why do we not see more women becoming serial killers? That's a good question, and it's an awful one for me to answer because I honestly don't know. I don't study female serial killers. I can offer some... I guess, some speculative hypotheses. But, but we're not missing a bunch of them. There's not mm. many females. There's some, maybe, but there's not many female serial killers. That's not true. No? I would say that's not true. Um, okay, and here's where speculation comes in. Again, I'm not a gender scholar. I'm not a sociologist. I, I'm just a person who studies male serial killers. So here's some speculation. I feel that there are a significant number of ser female serial killers, more so than we currently know. I think right now the estimate's at 15%. I believe it's higher, um, speculatively. I think that female serial killers, maybe this is sexist, I hope it's not, but I feel that female serial killers are better able at, better able to control themselves. They're able to impression manage more so than a male serial killer. Um, women, when when they get you know uh, abused, whatever, they tend to internalize as opposed to externalize. And so what that means is women kind of turn inwards. We might get depressed or anxious, and we'll keep our emotions in and hidden. Whereas men will lash out physically, and I think that lashing out physically gets you caught a lot faster. Whereas women are slower, more meticulous, more cautious, and a certain number of female serial killers in the past have also relied on stereotypes about what it is to be feminine and have used that as a way to hide. So they'll say, oh, but, but I'm a woman, I could never, or, oh, you know, poor, poor me, I was beaten and abused and I didn't mean to do this, but my partner beat me and so we had to, Carla Hummel. I was just going to, yeah, I was, <laughs> that name was right on the tip of my tongue as you were saying that. So if we know then that there is a, path that many or most serial killers will take to become in that place where they, and again, not everyone following that path is going to become a serial killer, but is there, are there any ways to predict ahead of time who will be that? When you're doing your work, are you actually trying to create a scenario where you can anticipate that person is going to be a serial killer or is it only, is that too impossible? We're just trying to find a way that they're going to kill someone. Let's catch them before they kill too many people. I love that your mind is on prediction because it's so futuristic. It's so now. But well, that would be the ultimate goal. That would, would not be, be the ultimate goal, wouldn't it? But I think at the same time, there's a, an issue with that in the sense that it's deterministic. So saying that a person who experiences abuse is going to become a serial killer is a grossly exaggerated thing, right? So, so and the percentage is tiny that exactly. would become that. Now, see, the problem is when you're doing prediction work, you have to know everything so comprehensively, so complexly, so in detail. And with serial homicide, we still don't even know how these people develop. We really don't. I mean, that's, that's what my whole dissertation is all about. And so we need to figure out first how they develop. And then maybe 20, 30 years from now, we can start you know, pulling that back and seeing what can we do in order to better predict. Now, that's not saying we can't do anything right now. 
Because there are risk factors that you see early in childhood that you can address. And again, not everybody with these risk factors is going to become a serial killer. In fact, the vast majority won't. But there are things that I think are worthy of addressing. So, for example, if um, a kid who's three years old is engaging in sadistic sexual play with either himself, herself, or another person, maybe a sibling or neighbor, that's something that needs to be addressed. Um, And it's not sexual play. A lot of kids' sexual play because they're exploring. It's normal. It's natural. Sadistic sexual play is when there are elements of violence uh, in there. Um, Killing animals. Killing... mm, Okay, so That's yes, killing animals, killing animals is good. It's good to refrain, though, from this thing called the McDonald triad. And the McDonald triad was this triad of supposed traits or characteristics that serial killers had. These were bedwetting, so enuriasis, arson, fire setting, and hurting animals. Now, all of this has been debunked. The, the McDonald triad is absolutely not related to serial homicide whatsoever. There's no evidence for it. I could go on a tirade about this because I'm so angry <laughs> with how it's been kind of shoved out there. But we do know that abusing animals, children who abuse animals, specifically mammals like cats and dogs, animals that you would domesticate, love, and hold, um, this is a problem. This shows a, a severe lack of empathy, a lack of emotional closeness, connection. Yeah. When you talk about the compulsion that they have, do we ever do we have any examples of anyone who has these compulsions and says, I'm not going to kill and goes and turns themselves in or asks for help? Does that ever happen that yes. someone says, I feel like I, I'm going to kill someone, help me? Does that ever happen? Yeah. Actually, more frequently than you would imagine. I've never heard of it. The lipstick killer. I completely forget his name, but you'll Google it. Um, This person wrote on the walls, help me before I kill again. Find me, catch me before I kill again. Um, So this is where this compulsive aspect becomes more than I can handle this. It becomes I can no longer handle this. I can no William Hirons. Thank you. Yes. Oh, you're fantastic. Yeah. Yes. Sorry, that was Ben helping me. I didn't know that off the top of my head, just in case you're wondering. Yeah. <laughs> Carry no, I on. Got this. <laughs> so he'd write on the wall, help me before I kill again, catch me before I kill again. You also have other serial killers like Ed Kemper, who after he committed his final act of killing his mother and for whatever reason, her friend called the police and said, okay, come get me. And he actually had to convince the police that he did it because he was so close to them. Um, Not all serial killers want to do what they're doing. Again, and this is where the compulsive aspect comes in. A lot of them have a lot of thrill and fun doing what they're doing, which is, it is what it is. But then you have another class after a certain period of time where they realize that what they have done is so far beyond what is normal and acceptable, and they feel discomforted by it in a way that shifts everything and makes them want to be found. They want to stop, but they know they can't stop themselves. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Here in studio is Sasha Reed, who is a, so, a serial killer researcher. Again, I think your business card is going to be awesome when you get those made. <laughs> it can be much more fancy than that, but I just you hand that to someone or put it on your passport, what's your, you know, your profession, serial. I once interviewed a guy who was a knight. He, he rode horses. <laughs> 
and he was involved in, you know, like at medieval times, only the real thing, only jousting, and his actual profession said knight. And I was like, that is the coolest thing to ever have. That's way better than mine. Oh, I don't know. Serial killer researcher. Uh, Okay, so you, I came to be familiar with you and came to know about your work because you did contribute, you were involved in this gay village with uh, Bruce uh, MacArthur. And part of this, and the reason you got into that is because you have a, you do this, but then you have this side hobby, which of course, who wouldn't have a side hobby? Uh, and it is a database of missing persons mm-hmm. with, I, I assume, with the intended goal, hey, if there's a whole bunch in a certain area, if there's clusters, maybe we need to look at why there's so many people. Am I close? You know what? I, I have a serial or a, a missing persons database. And yes, this was a side project because, you know, working 16 hours a day wasn't enough. Yeah, with so, serial killers. <laughs> there actually, there was no... No goal with this. That's the whole reason why I did it. I, I basically just wanted to, it was very compulsive. <laughs> I just woke up one morning and said, okay, I'm going to do this. And I sat down and I did it. And that's it. There was no goal at all except one guiding vision, one. And that was nobody gets left behind. So that's it. Okay. And when you do it though, probably, and I haven't seen the map, I haven't seen the, the I haven't seen it, but I'm assuming that when you do this and then you pull back at 30,000 feet and look down, you see clusters that are around certain mm. places. Does that, and maybe it's because you're working, studying serial killers all the time, but does the immediate conclusion or thought go, I wonder if something's going on in that area? Yeah. Well, actually, one of the fun things that I like to do at the end of the night after so much work and just inputting names into this database is pausing for a moment and uploading all of this data to um, a map, a mappers, just a geographical mapper. And so I'll take maybe a thousand names and I'll throw them up. And I love just pulling back and seeing what's going on. Where are people missing? And every once in a while, you'll find clusters of people who have gone missing or who have been found deceased. Now, again, it's a missing persons and unsolved homicide database. And so you will see these clusters. You see them all across Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan. You see them everywhere. Now, this isn't to say that there's serial killers. I mean, I think it's it's irresponsible to say that all these clusters are due to serial killers. It's just not true at all. But I think it's worthy of pause when you see clusters of missing people or unsolved homicides. It's worthy of pause. And it's worthy just to zoom in on those clusters and get a better sense of who are these people who are missing. And in fact, that's exactly what I did with the Church Wellesley um, disappearances. First, I zoomed out, noticed a cluster. Then I zoomed in and understood who these people were. And do the people in the when it it starts to make sense that there could be a serial killer, are the victims generally, do they have something in common? Generally? Generally, yeah. So generally, they'll be roughly the same age, the same socioeconomic status. They'll be from the same areas. They'll be the same ethnicity, um, same gender. So, yeah, there's some So when you look at other clusters then, so the, then the leap, which again, you know, we don't want to be saying there are serial killers behind every door. No. But when you look at other clusters, have you found others that you have looked at and said, hmm, uh, there's some similarities there, I wonder. Um, many. Really? Yes, many. I'm not going to say exactly where they are, just in case there are current active Hamilton? investigations. Not in Hamilton. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> not that I, I know of yet. But, I mean, there are some interesting clusters where there are young men um, between the ages of 20 to 25 who enjoy partying, uh, which is not a bad thing. It's totally cool. But who enjoy partying, who are found dead. 
Um, there's several clusters. I mean, I'm going to say this one openly just because I think it's a humongous national issue, and it should remain a national issue, the um, presumed drownings of Indigenous kids in Thunder Bay. There's a lot of missing people, a lot of missing women in Kenora. These are areas that I'm from. These, this is my home base. So these are areas that are important to me. Um, you've got the Highway of Tears. These are obviously places where, you know, on, on the map it's interesting. It just lights up because it's red dots that's connecting all of these. So it literally lights up. Um, there's a lot of missing people in Kingston, a lot of unsolved homicides um, that cluster around. So, yeah. Maybe. Maybe. And if they found out later that there were serial killers... I would assume that would lead you, if you've already found it in the gay village, and then there's a couple others that may pop up, it would probably lead to more suspicion on your part that those other ones may be. Is that, I mean, again, this this is not what this was for, what this yeah. database was for, but it's... It's turned into that. <laughs> um so for me, like I feel that it's always important to have it in the back of your in the back of your mind that it may be, it potentially might be. Now, Canada is an especially difficult case because you know any kind of serial homicide investigation is absolutely ridiculously difficult to solve, and I think that's that's something that people forget because we're in the era of CSI and criminal minds. But no, serial homicide you can't do it in one hour. No, unfortunately, oh. <laughs> they take years, sometimes decades, and it's not always apparent. Who's going missing? Who's dying? It's not always connected, or it's not always clear that, that the homicides or missing people are connected. Now, also remember that being a missing person is not a crime, right? And so that also obscures and complicates all of these investigations. So again, it might be that these people from these certain areas are just taking off. We only have a minute or so left. Has there ever been a case that you have heard about from someone where a serial killer is caught and the people around who knew or interacted or lived near or whatever, said, yeah, that guy was, I, I, I suspected that all the time. Or, or is it always a bit of a surprise? Like, when you see in retrospect that they get caught, was there a giant red flashing beacon above their head that everyone kind of says, oh, yeah, of course, I should have known that person was that? Or is it always a surprise that that person had done those things? Um, as far as I can recall, there's not a lot of cases where people are like, oh, yeah, of course it was him. In fact, the majority of cases I've studied, people are always taken aback. They always say, no, not him. Like, oh, it can't be him. But that's just because serial killers, a lot of them, are experts at impression management. They know what to show people to avoid suspicion. So your neighbor could be a serial killer. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, not, yeah, we, we won't go down that road. <laughs> Very unlikely, thankfully, that that would be the case. Just have a minute or so left here, Sasha. Very quickly, because I don't know if you've seen these. You've been so busy doing your work. But on Netflix right now, there's a show called Unabomber, which is about the search for Ted Kaczynski. It was all the psychological stuff. Uh, there's one called Mindhunter, which is all about the kind of things that are involved. Are any of these things realistic? Are they remotely like what goes on, or is this just Hollywood? Okay, so it's hard because I don't really have time for TV. I, didn't, I was guessing that that was <laughs> the case. I can say this. I'm not too sure how realistic they are. I'm assuming no, just because they're TV and right, TV is totally sensationalized. But I'll, I'll, I'll give you a fun fact. So there's a person on the show Mindhunter. Her name is Wendy Carr. And last October, I met the real Wendy Carr. Her name is Dr. Anne Burgess. I met her in Boston. And she's an extraordinary woman, not a lesbian. Um, I guess the one in Mindhunter is. I think so, yeah. So whatever. Um, she's extraordinary. And the work that she does is extraordinary. It's the only word I have really for her. And so if Wendy Carr in the show is extraordinary, then yeah. <laughs> 
Really appreciate you doing this tonight. Really great job. Really fascinating, fascinating stuff. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.